I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to the Midweek Show. We're going to be talking about four stories today. Uh, before we do that, Tom, do you want to add things? Absolutely. I just want to say thank you for joining us. This is going to be a really interesting episode. And also, if this is, if you like the content, just click the like and subscribe button. You'll get the latest details from us. Also, if you want to support the channel, you can do that through Patreon, and we've got a link in the description. All right, awesome. All right, everyone, I'm going to start the stories here, and then Tom and I will be back for our discussion. Welcome. This is a series of three stories being brought to you by William Jevening and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of the first story is Grays Harbor County, Washington, July 1978. I was 16 at the time and visiting my relatives that live in Hump Tulips on the Bowes Road, Washington State, for the summer. I have always been a light sleeper, and that night was no different. I was awakened by the dog, a large German shepherd, barking wildly outside. I cannot say why she did not awake anybody else, because it was obvious to me that something was wrong outside not like a dog just barking at a rabbit or what not. All I can think of is I was visiting from the city and not used to the quiet of the country or hearing a dog bark at night. I got up and looked out the window to see if I could locate her. I remember looking at the alarm clock. It was a little after 3 o'clock a.m. My uncle and aunt always had a large mercury light on a pole outside the front door as a kind of night light porch light for the parking area, so it was easy to see. At first, when I looked out the window, I couldn't see the dog, as she was around the corner of the house, barking wildly like I had never seen her bark before. Then I saw her come around the front, and she was making a half-moon circle from the end of the house to the mercury light pole, as if to set up a perimeter of guard for the house. She was an average-sized shepherd, but very protective. I watched for a couple of seconds more, trying to see what she was so excited about. Then it came into my line of vision. It was traveling from the corner of the house toward the mercury light. It was massive and made that dog look like a pup next to it. I recall she barely came to his knees. The dog kept following it, barking and lunging threateningly, but it did not look like it was the least bit concerned. It was all one color, a brown, silvery color like a grula horse. It did not have particularly long hair, maximum length, maybe one and a half inches. 
its hair reminded me of what you would see on any summertime animal that had lost its winter coat. You know, the animal is covered with hair, but not long hair. It was so strange the way that it swung its arms. It struck me as kind of silly-looking. It did not have a hump on its head or back. It was just thick and big like a big man looks when he wears work coveralls over his normal clothes. He took three steps and was from the corner of the house to the tree line. Then the dog lunged at him one more time, and he turned and looked down at her. It was shocking, because my window was no more than fifty feet from where he was, and I could see his face plainly. He looked like a person, but his face was still the same shade, perhaps slightly lighter than his body, head, and neck hair. His eyes were looking down at the dog, so I could not discern any color, but his nose and lips were not monkey or ape-like. They looked human. He was almost to the tree line, and he looked back at the tree, lifted his left arm, and moved the tree bough aside so that he could step under the tree into the darkness. I was in shock. I climbed back in bed and covered up to my neck in the blankets waiting for the dog to quit barking. It seemed like it took forever. I barely slept the rest of the night. The next morning, at the crack of dawn, I woke up my cousins and told them what I saw. It was the summer, and the ground was very dry, so dry that there was a coating of dust in the gravel driveway in places that had once been mud puddles during the winter. We went outside, and I was showing them where he went, and I could not believe it. In one of those dust puddles was a footprint he had left just before he stepped under the tree. It was a perfect print of a large bare foot with five distinct toes. It was twice as big and wide as my size seven and a half foot. That was the clincher. Even if my mind wanted to explain away the huge figure as something other than a Bigfoot, it couldn't now. Well, everybody decided that I had been telling them the truth. As I stood there by the footprint, still in kind of a daze, I turned my head up to look at the tree bough, and it was way, way over my head. I am five foot four, and I remember raising my hands up as high as I could and jumping and still could not touch the branch. It was at least three feet over my head. He had moved it aside because it was going to slap him in the face. I never forgot that night, and I never will. It still gives me chills when I recount the story to others. It was clear that the creature was just passing through and intended no trouble, but it was still very creepy. Since that time, I have spent a lot of time in the timber by my house in the same general area, horseback riding and hiking, and have had many occasions to hear tree knocks, whistles, whoops, and even vocalizations. In fact, all of my family has heard those sounds, and I would love to see one again, what a privilege it was. That's the end of story number one. And now, story number two. The title of this story, Greenberry, Benton County, Oregon, 
March 2002. I believe it would have been Benton County, although we may have just crossed into Lincoln County. March 2002, around noontime. It was the middle of March, and Joe and A, names changed by request, and myself, were in the Oregon Coast Range just above a little town called Greenberry, about 30 miles west of Corvallis, driving up a BLM road on the southeast side of Buck Mountain, just south of Mary's Peak, which is the highest point in the Oregon Coast Range. We rounded a 90-degree turn to the right where several trees were down across the road, blocking any driving further up the road. The fallen trees had been cut, and we figured the area was zoned to be logged or something. It was strange that cut trees would be left laying across the access road, though. We were just driving around the countryside and chatting, not having much else to do. We decided to get out and have a little walk. It was misting. We climbed over the trees and were basically just walking and talking and drinking our first beers of the day when we came around another 90-degree turn, this time to our left. It was here that A first saw what he thought was a track. Not even thinking anything remotely like Bigfoot, we examined it, and it sure looked like a footprint to us. I then looked down, and beside my foot, I'd nearly stepped on it, was a very clear footprint that clearly showed five toes. The imprint was of a bare foot, no shoes. We couldn't believe our eyes. We began tracing the footprints up the mountain. The tracks were clear as day, one step, then another, and another, and so on. The biggest track was about 15 inches by 6 inches wide. The distance between each track, moving up the hillside, was a greater distance than I could stretch my legs coming down. I do not know the exact stride measurement. It was beginning to rain now. Of all the imprints, probably only two or three were what I would call clear footprints. The majority were simply huge ruts that had been left by something big stomping up that grade. The tracks were very obvious and, as Joe mentioned, showed that something was scrambling to get out of there. At this point, Joe left to go get a camera that was in his truck. A and myself stayed and continued to look for more tracks. She retraced the steps to try and get an idea of where it had come in. I moved to the right of the tracks, looking for just whatever, when I came across a parallel trail of tracks. These were not nearly as large as the first set of tracks, and seemed to be moving in the same direction as the larger set of tracks. Then suddenly, the second set of tracks took a hard right and angled up to the road toward the general area where we started our walk at the cut trees across the road that blocked car access. I followed the tracks to the road, and then I lost them where they went up the mountain on the opposite side. He heard birds calling in the rain. Around this time, Joe arrived back with the camera, and I can still remember the first thing he said to us. Did you guys hear anything? We hadn't heard anything, but I had heard two loud bird calls that I distinctly remember thinking had a funny ring to them. Nothing bizarre or totally strange. I just didn't know what kind of bird it was. Joe was silent for a moment. Then he said, I heard birds call at the truck. 
birds don't call in the rain. He was right. Anytime you're outside, when a rain is coming down, listen. There won't be any birds calling. Next, he took a look at the tracks I showed him that I found. They were now pooling up with standing puddles of water. The rain was really coming down. Whatever made these footprints had crossed that road seconds before we rounded the corner. They heard us coming. Whatever it was down in that ravine could hear us talking and probably making plenty of noise on the gravel. The track makers had taken to higher ground in a hurry. Were they still there? I don't know, but they could have been, and we didn't see them. The area above the road we walked up on was much higher and heavily timbered. There were no odd smells, and we never felt like we were being watched, but the odd bird-like calls did have us talking later. Birds do not sing in the rain. That was it. We never saw what had made the tracks. They were not bear tracks, nor were they made by a big bull elk. The tracks were human-like, with five toes showing, not cloven hooves. The only other thing, other than a Sasquatch, that could have made the tracks would have been an enormous man without any shoes. But no one was up there. Certainly no vehicles, as the downed trees that had fallen across the main road prevented anyone with wheels access to this particular area. The terrain was extraordinarily steep and thickly wooded. Ranger slips up. Interestingly enough, the very next day, Joe called a ranger or a forestry station nearby. He told them that he had found big barefoot tracks. The ranger quickly replied, Well, yes, there are bear up there, Joe interrupted. No, I mean big bear human tracks. What the ranger said next shocked Joe silent for a moment. The ranger said, Oh, you mean Sasquatch tracks? And we had those last year over in Colton. We didn't know what to make of them. Joe told me the man then suddenly clammed up, as if he suddenly realized what he had said. And that ends story number two. Story number three. This story is copyrighted by the Smithsonian, January 1974, Volume 4, Number 10. The search goes on for Bigfoot. A huge, shy primate, unknown to science, or a 160-year-old fraud. Whatever it is, it has left tracks all over the Pacific Northwest. They saw one last summer in Illinois. It rose up in the darkness, smelling of the slime of a sluggish river, and scared some carnival ponies and several citizens of the town of Murfreesboro before it disappeared. This was one of the hundreds of sightings of hulking, hairy, man-like creatures that have been reported over the last 160 years or so, but it was a most unusual one. Most of the sightings have been in the Pacific Northwest, where the creature is known as Sasquatch. That is also where most of the footprints have been found and where this creature was photographed on 16mm motion picture film. At least, maybe it was photographed. Most human societies harbor a deep-seated myth about such a creature. What child hasn't at one time or another worried about the boogeyman? 
but some people think a boogeyman of sorts exists. The abominable snowman of the Himalayas, also known as Yeti, is perhaps the best-known candidate. The Indian tribes of America's west coast had a variety of names for the American Sasquatch, a Salish name. Yet another name for it is Bigfoot, and it is apt. The deeply imprinted footprints attributed to Sasquatch are some four to seven inches wide and from twelve to seventeen inches long. Clearly the spore of an enormous animal, or of an extraordinarily industrious footprint hoaxer, can it be that the space age here is a huge living primate about which science knows nothing, and one that lives in our own country to boot? I recall discussing it with a widely known nature editor in New York, who laughingly informed me that the entire idea was preposterous, that a Sasquatch couldn't possibly remain hidden in this day and age when the woods are crawling with hunters, campers, snowmobilers, Shortly thereafter, I was flying down through the river valleys of northern California, and the thought crossed my mind that you could hide a herd of elephants in any square mile of that country with no trouble at all. In California alone, the northern wildness is about the size of the state of Maine. There is plenty of room for Sasquatch and plenty of food and water. But do Sasquatches exist? Opinions are plentiful, evidence is in limited supply, and there is currently no proof one way or the other. Most scientifically trained people who think about it at all believe it is all nonsense, but a few scientists believe in Sasquatch, and so does Peter Byrne, one animal tracker of legendary skill who is currently camped out in the Dalles, Oregon, determined once and for all to prove Sasquatch's existence or lack of it. Byrne is a 47-year-old, Irish-born, former big-game hunter, who at one time specialized in taking sportsmen on tiger hunts in Nepal, on the edge of the Himalayas. Recognizing that the tiger was in serious trouble, he established a 50,000-acre tiger sanctuary and helped found the International Wildlife Conservation Society in Washington, D.C., which administers it. While in Nepal, Byrne had undertaken several major yeti hunting expeditions and then became interested in the American Sasquatch. Using his own resources and aided by a few small contributions, Byrne has been tracking Sasquatch for 35 months, collecting all the available sighting reports, following every lead, every footprint. Sasquatch first appears in White Man's records in 1811, when an exploring party led by David Thompson found 14-inch by 8-inch footprints in Canada that seemed too large to be those of a bear. The Indian guides, though armed with guns, would not hear of pursuing these tracks. Over the years, as the wild areas of the Northwest were settled, there were many other reports of tracks and of meetings between Sasquatches and humans, in 1884, a construction crew was building the railroad near Yale, British Columbia, when the train engineer came upon a gorilla-type creature lying asleep or unconscious near the railroad. Awakened, apparently, by the sound of the train stopping, it began to climb the bluff with the train crew in hot pursuit. It was eventually cornered, 
felled by a rock dropped on its head from above, and held captive for several days in Yale. From the description, more than four feet tall, and covered with hair, and of extraordinary strength, it could have been an ape, or a small or young Sasquatch. But captive apes were rare in the United States and Canada. The fate of Jacko, as the creature was named, is unknown, because the local newspaper was being relocated at the time, and subsequent issues carried no further mention of the creature. There are literally hundreds of reports in newspaper files in which one or more people have seen one or more of the creatures. Their descriptions, unlike those of UFOs, are almost always about the same. The creatures stand about eight feet tall, have no neck, and are covered with short hair, reddish-brown, and sometimes black below the knee. They have been likened to a long-legged gorilla and walk upright in a flat-footed gait. Bears drop on all fours when moving. In March 1973, four fishermen saw a Sasquatch emerge from the forest, walk along a beach, and re-enter the woods. Most contacts have been similar, though the number of eyewitnesses range from one to a dozen people. The Sasquatch may be seen for just a few seconds as it crosses a road, or it may stay in sight for several minutes. A 500-pound footprint machine? Now, it would be fairly easy to dismiss all of this as mass hallucination except for several things. First, the reports, though separated by hundreds of miles and scores of years, do tend to match. Furthermore, Eyewitnesses do not necessarily tend to come forward readily. Instead, most are reluctant to talk about their sightings, and many have insisted on anonymity, hardly the actions of publicity seekers. No one, it seems, likes to be laughed at, so eyewitnesses keep quiet and must be sought out. So far, Peter Byrne has interviewed more than 70 in his quest for Bigfoot, and he has followed Bigfoot's tracks. Mass hysteria cannot explain the footprints. Thousands have been examined, hundreds cast in plaster. Can they be brushed aside as fakes? Peter Byrne once followed such tracks for seven miles along a snowy mountain ridge, some eleven miles in the woods. This alone would make a believer out of anyone, says Byrne. Indeed. Did someone really transport a 500-pound footprint-making machine back in there, one that could walk on two legs without supporting legs that would have left their own tracks in the snow? And all this where a hoaxer could not expect Byrne or anyone else to see them before they melted. Dr. Grover Krantz of Washington State University at Pullman is one of the few scientists who believes that Sasquatch may exist. He has examined dozens of casts of the footprints and sees significant differences between them and human feet. He has drawn the probable bone structure on the casts themselves and finds certain formations that would be essential for a 500 to 800 pound animal. If these prints were faked, he claims they must have been faked by an expert in anatomy. The footprints are hard to explain away yet they do not comprise what scientists would call hard evidence. 
patches of hair and droppings found in the woods have been examined at the Smithsonian Institution. The material was found to be bear-like, but some was unidentifiable. One would think a photograph would be all that is needed to conclude that Sasquatch is real, but that too is not enough. Some years ago, a California rancher named Roger Patterson became interested in Sasquatch and began searching in interest. Four years later, in 1967, he exposed about 25 seconds of extraordinary and very controversial movie film. What money he made from this was spent on an additional four-year search, at the end of which he died a natural death. The Patterson film has been shown to a number of scientific groups and has been most carefully examined in every detail. It is, unfortunately, of very poor quality, taken with a cheap 16mm camera at a distance of more than 100 feet. Worse, Patterson was not sure whether the camera was set at 16 frames per second or at 24. A man in a fursuit? The film shows an upright creature, small for a Sasquatch, about seven feet tall, which walks across the field of view, turns to look at the camera, and continues on out of sight. It left fairly small footprints, about fourteen and a half inches long, which would be strongly commensurate with its height, though there is disagreement about this among anatomists. Not just scientists have examined the film, however. What is probably the world's best and most famous animation studio examined it carefully and declared they thought it was a living animal, not a man in a fursuit. In fact, they said that the only firm in the world capable of faking such a creature successfully was their own studio, and they hadn't done it. In London, Dr. Donald W. Grieve, an anatomist specializing in the human gait at the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine, analyzed the film frame by frame and made detailed studies of factors such as angular leg movements, stride length, and the time of leg swing. He concluded that if the framing speed were 16 or 18 feet per second, fakery was unlikely, but at 24 feet per second it could be a very clever fake. Dr. Grieve has written that his impressions oscillated between total acceptance of the Sasquatch to irrational rejection based on an emotional response to the possibility that the Sasquatch actually exists. More recently, Dr. Dmitry D. Domsky, chief of the biomechanics at the USSR Central Institute of Physical Culture in Moscow, has studied the film. Like Dr. Grieve, he has made exhaustive measurements of all parts of the gate and also the torso swing when the creature turns toward the camera. He says that the walk, as demonstrated by the creature in the film, is absolutely non-typical of man, and that he does not believe the film was faked. The evidence of the film is less impressive to a distinguished British physical anthropologist, Dr. John Napier formerly of the Smithsonian Institute. In a recent released book, Bigfoot, The Yeti and Sasquatch in Myth and Reality, he concludes that the Yeti or abominable snowman of the Himalayas is surely a myth. As for Sasquatch, the Patterson film, he says, is inconclusive 
Even given the capacity which most humans have of deluding themselves, Napier finds the many eyewitness reports persuasive, and the footprints conclusive. Either some of the footprints are real, or all are fakes, he writes, and the latter seems to him to be impossible. I am convinced that the Sasquatch exists, he goes on, but whether it is all that it is cracked up to be is another matter altogether. If Sasquatch exists, then what is it? Napier suggests that the best candidate for the ancestors of Sasquatch is Paranthropus, an evolutionary offshoot of the course of human evolution, an ape-like vegetarian that lived some two million years ago, according to fossils found in Africa. As Napier points out, if Sasquatch does turn out to exist, the zoologists and anthropologists will have a great deal to explain. For now, the best hope of settling the question of Sasquatch's existence is Peter Byrne. No scientific group has ever undertaken a serious search of any magnitude, nor does it seem likely that any will soon. There is a considerable number of weekend warriors who go forth heavily armed to seek the Sasquatch in the name of the sport. Of the handful of serious searchers, many also believe in killing the first one they see. Canadian John Green, for example, has said, Gun it down, cut off a piece if you can carry it out, and get out of there. Peter Byrne considers this approach inhumane as well as unnecessary, especially because the Sasquatch, if it exists at all, is a rare species that furthermore might prove to be subhuman. Byrne carries a tranquilizer gun with him as he stalks the wilderness and plans to immobilize his prey long enough for a group of scientists to arrive and examine and photograph it. Since its existence has not been shown in any approved manner, the Sasquatch does not enjoy the protection of other rare and endangered species except in Skamania County in Washington, where an ordinance was passed in 1969 prohibiting the wanton slaying of a nocturnal primate described as an ape-like creature or a subspecies of Homo sapiens. For now, Byrne operates out of his headquarters at the Dalles, Oregon, following up every lead that comes along. He has built an observatory overlooking an area where Sasquatches have reportedly been seen regularly. In seven out of nine successive years, he is often asked why, if Sasquatches exist and are so large, that they are so seldom seen. One could draw a parallel to the cougar, which certainly does exist in the Pacific Northwest, but is shy, wary, alert, and avoids humans quite successfully. Many people have lived 40 years in remote areas without ever seeing one. Says Byrne, there are perhaps only one or two hundred Sasquatches spread over an area of thousands of square miles. You can see that the population density is very low at best. Then consider that you must also have a human at the same time and place to do the sighting, and you begin to see the problem. And the Sasquatch is basically very shy, and has far sharper senses than man's. He can easily avoid human contact. As if this weren't enough, whenever a Sasquatch does show his face, likely as not, someone tries to kill him with a gun. Can you blame them for 
avoiding humans? This is the end of the three readings. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevening and is being narrated by Jim Sower. This is the Ruby Creek story. Stories about the Sasquatch have been appearing in print from time to time since the 1860s, and I have clippings in my files from almost every year since the early 1920s. But the modern history of the Sasquatch really dates from September 1941, when one of these creatures paid a visit, in broad daylight, to an Indian family named Chapman. While the Amerindian stories have usually been dismissed as legend, or laughed off because uh, they're not supposed to be reliable, this experience was accompanied by too much physical evidence to be ignored. The Chapman family consisted of George and Jeannie Chapman, and children numbering, at my visit, four. Mr. Chapman worked on the railroad, and was living at that time in a small place called Ruby Creek, 30 miles up the Fraser River from Agassiz, British Columbia, in Canada's great western province. It was about three in the afternoon of a sunny, cloudless day when Jeannie Chapman's eldest son, then age nine, came running to the house saying that there was a cow coming down out of the woods at the foot of the nearby mountain. The other kids, a boy age seven and a little girl of five, were still playing in a field behind the house bordering on the rail track. Miss Chapman went out to look. Since the boy seemed oddly disturbed, and they saw what at first she thought was a very big bear moving about among the bushes bordering on the field beyond the railway tracks, she called the two children, who came running immediately. Then the creature moved onto the tracks, and she saw, to her horror, that it was a gigantic man covered with hair, not fur. The hair seemed to be about four inches long all over, and of a pale yellow-brown color. To pin down this color, Mrs. Chapman pointed out to me a sheet of lightly varnished plywood in the room where we were sitting. This was of a brown okra color. This creature advanced directly towards the house, and Mrs. Chapman had, as she put it, much too much time to look at it because she stood her ground outside while the eldest boy, on her instructions, got a blanket from the house and rounded up the other children. The kids were in a near panic, she told us, and it took two or three minutes to get the blanket, during which time the creature had reached the near corner of the field only about one hundred feet away from her. Mrs. Chapman then spread the blanket and, Holding it aloft so the kids could not see the creature, or it them, she backed off at the double, to the old field, and down onto the river beach out of sight, and then ran with the kids downstream to the village. I asked her a leading question about the blanket. Had her purpose in using it been to prevent her kids seeing the creature, in accordance with an alleged Amerindian belief that to do so brings bad luck and often death? Her reply was both prompt and surprising. She said that, although she had heard white men tell of that belief, 
She had not heard it from her parents or any other of her people whose advice regarding the so-called Sasquatch had been simply not to go further than certain points up certain valleys, to run if she saw one, and not to struggle if one caught her as it might squeeze her to death by mistake. No, she said. I used the blanket because I thought it was after one of the kids, and so might go into the house to look for them instead of following me. This seems to have been sound logic, as the creature did go into the house, and also rummaged through an old outhouse pretty thoroughly, hauling from it a fifty-five-gallon barrel of salt fish, breaking this open and scattering its contents about outside. The irony of it is that all three children did die within three years, the two boys by drowning, and the little girl on a sick bed. And just after I interviewed the Chapmans, they also were drowned in the Fraser River when a rowboat capsized. Mrs. Chapman told me that the creature was about seven and a half feet tall. She could estimate its height by the various fence and line posts standing about the field. It had a rather small head and a very short, thick neck. In fact, really, no neck at all, a point that was emphasized by William Rowe and by all others who claimed to have seen one of these creatures. Its body was entirely human in shape, except that it was immensely thick through its chest and its arms were exceptionally long. She did not see the feet, which were in the grass. Its shoulders were very wide and it had no breasts, from which Mrs. Chapman assumed it was a male though she did not see any male genitalia due to the long hair covering its groin. She was most definite on one point. The naked parts of its face and its hands were much darker than its hair, and appeared to be almost black. George Chapman returned home from his work on the railroad that day shortly before six in the evening, and by a route that bypassed the village, so that he saw no one to tell him what had happened. When he reached his house, he immediately saw the woodshed door battered in, and spotted enormous humanoid footprints all over the place. Greatly alarmed, for he, like all of his people, had heard since childhood about the big wild men of the mountains, though he did not hear the word Sasquatch till after this incident. He called for his family, and then dashed through the house, then he spotted the foot tracks of his wife and kids going off toward the river. He followed these until he picked them up on the sand beside the river and saw them going off downstream without any giant ones following. Somewhat relieved, he was retracing his steps when he stumbled across the giant's foot tracks on the river bank farther upstream. These had come down out of the potato patch, which lay between the house and the river had milled about by the river, and then gone back through the old field toward the foot of the mountains, where they disappeared in the heavy growth. Returning to the house, relieved to know that the tracks of all four of his children and family had gone off downstream to the village, George Chapman went to examine the woodshed. In our interview, after eighteen years, he still expressed voluble astonishment that any living thing, even a seven-foot-six-inch man with the barrel chest, could lift a fifty-five-gallon tub of fish and break it open without using a tool. 
He confirmed the creature's height after finding a number of long brown hairs stuck in the slabwood lintel of the doorway above the level of his head. George Chapman then went off to the village to look for his family and found them in a state of calm collapse. He gathered them up and invited his father-in-law and two others to return with him for protection of his family when he was away at work. The foot tracks returned every night for a week, and on two occasions the dogs that the Chapmans had taken with them set up the most awful racket at exactly two o'clock in the morning. The Sasquatch did not, however, molest them or apparently touch either the house or the woodshed. But the whole business was too unnerving, and the family finally moved out. They never went back. After a long chat about this and other matters, Mrs. Chapman suddenly told us something very significant just as we were leaving. She said, It made an awful funny noise. I asked her if she could imitate this noise for me, but it was her husband who did so, saying that he had heard it at night twice during the week after the first incident. He then proceeded to utter exactly the same strange, gurgling whistle that the men in California, who said they had heard a Bigfoot call, had given us. This is a sound I cannot reproduce in print, but I can assure you that it is unlike anything I have ever heard given by man or beast anywhere in the world. To me this information is of greatest significance. That an Amerindian couple in British Columbia should give out with exactly the same strange sound in connection with a Sasquatch that two highly educated white men did over 600 miles south in connection with California's Bigfoot is incredible. If this is all hoax or a publicity stunt or a mass hallucination, as some people have claimed, how does it happen that this noise, which defies description, always sounds the same no matter who has tried to reproduce it for me? These were probably the last words on the Sasquatch that the Chapmans uttered, and I absolutely refused to listen to anybody who might say that they were lying. Admittedly, honest men are such a rarity as possibly to be non-existent, but I have met a few who could qualify, and I put the Chapmans near the head of that list. This story was written by Ivan T. Sanderson in True Magazine, March 1960. This concludes the reading of Ruby Creek. Thank you for listening. And we're back, everyone. Um, these were interesting stories. There was one in there that I wasn't quite sure about myself, but let's start with the um, Grace Harbor County, uh, July 1978 story, the first one. There were some interesting things in there. There were some similarities to um, what happened to us in Yakult. For instance, um, you know, the way the dog was barking at the creature, you know, in the Yakult, they had the German Shepherd, Rusty was the dog's name, that would bark. And sometimes it wouldn't bark. Sometimes it would act very peculiar in the yard. But what I found odd in this story was that, you know, the person who who made this report said that they, uh, the dog was going after the creature and the creature kind of ignored it until one time it turned around and kind of stared at the dog. I just kind of found that odd that the dog would keep lunging at the creature. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I remember 
hearing that in the story, and I, I kind of thought the same thing. Um, typically, the stories that we hear is the dogs get the memo, it's a creature, and they want to get away from it. Right. <clears throat> it was interesting, you know, he said he was a city kid, and, you know, normally, and I know a lot of times my dog would bark, and I just would ignore him <laughs> because he just barked at stuff, you know. A lot of times it was the cows or whatever going on at night, raccoons, things in the yard. But, um, you know, somebody from the city would be in a different mindset. So he, you know, got up at 3 a.m. to see what was going on, and he, he saw this massive creature. So, uh, but it was interesting that um, you said its arms swung odd and the footprints were uh, approximately 15 inches long, which is interesting because that comes out to... Uh, 8.25 feet tall and he talked about uh, the creature moving a branch and I think he said he was about 5'4 and, and the branch was quite a bit above his head if that's if I'm correct on that yeah yeah he did well and he also mentioned the the face he saw the face and he said it wasn't ape or monkey like it was almost human yeah that's that's odd. I mean, I, I do hear that occasionally from people, but I guess that's interpretation. I, I don't know, you know, without actually being in the person's shoes. So let's move on to story number two. This was in the town of Greenberry in Benton County, Oregon, 2002, uh, in the month of March. So, again, this had this creature also had 15-inch tracks. Uh, <clears throat> they did find some good clear prints. What's interesting about this story, and this is particularly interesting, and I never really thought about this, you know, growing up, you know, you and I both grew up in the Northwest, so uh, we're pretty acclimated to the surroundings, and I think a little too much sometimes because they mention in here that birds don't sing when it's raining, and and that's for the most part true, I think. I, I don't know if you ever noticed that, Tom? Absolutely not. They do not. And here's the thing. I took a look at the location. And although I wasn't familiar with the name Greenberry, Greenberry consists of a gas station and a, and a grange. That's it. A lot <laughs> of little towns are like that. Their, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have driven by and through that town hundreds of times. Just maybe not hundreds, a lot, a lot over the years. I know the area very well, and I know the location that we're talking about. I know Mary's Peak, and I know the the uh, the forest in that area. And as a matter of fact, uh, the card for this episode is from that area. I, I went and pulled it out of my pictures. It's, uh, it's very wet, very damp, and I'm telling you, when the rain pours, it's just it was a typical Pacific Northwest coastal range. Every cloud, every bit of moisture plows into those mountains, and it just dumps. There's no bird singing, nothing. There's not an animal making a sound, and there's certainly no uh, birds chirping. So that was a good point, very good point. Yeah, you know, I'd never thought about that. It's That was kind of, in a way, a new piece for me to think about this because you know, you, you, growing up in those environments, you sort of gloss over things. You know, you don't really think about the background stuff, you know, unless it's something you're, it's out of place. And uh, now I'm thinking back, you know, all the times um, that I might have heard 
bird calls, you know, in, when it was raining. And, and I can't remember too many. I, I do recall there were occasional ones. Now it makes me wonder if it was actually birds. Well, and I think in the spring, and I don't, I'm trying to remember, I don't think this story was springtime. In the spring, you may have a light rain, but that's different because you can have very patchy areas. You can, it can be raining literally in your house and a block and a half away, there's no rain at all. And then give it 20, 30 seconds and the clouds will move over. Well, the date so was, the date was, or the month was March. Oh, it was. Okay. So it was springtime. Nonetheless, when it's raining and, you know, if you got solid cloud cover and it's pouring down rain, the birds are hunkering down. Yeah. They are not out singing. There's no reason for them to sing. There was interesting too, when you talked about the tracks, there was a line of tracks and then they found a second set of tracks that ran crossways across the set that they were following. Yes. I thought that was interesting. And then I, wasn't there some talk about they sort of were going in different directions or meandering around something like that? I, I don't recall offhand. Right. Yeah, they were. And you've mentioned this in the past. I've seen and it, very, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They meander it. And the very first set of footprints that I found was they're meandering all over the place. Now, I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they were picking berries. I, I don't know. But it wasn't. it was not a straight line. So I, I figured you'd have uh, some interest in this one because, you know, that's uh, kind of your neck of the woods there. It is. And we had a gentleman on a while back, uh, about three years ago, a guy named Lee. And he had a scary encounter. You remember that? Right. And in that area, wasn't it? In that exact area. And as a matter of fact, I was listening to a guy... Oh, several weeks ago, talking about, again, that area, only a little bit closer to the coast. And <clears throat> he said, all the time, at nighttime, they would hear these things screaming. Yeah, I absolutely. You know, going back to the birds for a moment, we talked last week about, you know, we had that first chapter from Ivan Sanderson's book, and I've been doing some additional reading since then. Um, and, and some very interesting stuff uh, from a book by a guy named John Keel from 1957. And it was actually, of course, before that, some of the incidents he talks about there were from 1955. But uh, the locals there in that part of Tibet, whenever they would, they would hear these noises, and, and he thought it was birds. And the locals were all saying, no, that's, you know, the word for Yeti, and, which I found very interesting. And... And some of those occasions were in rain uh, also. So there's there some things we'll talk about when we go through that to uh, kind of update everybody on the things that were in that story or that chapter. But uh, I, I found it interesting, the uh, comparisons. Yeah, exactly. And again, going back to the rain, I think if it's uh, the very light rain uh, or the patchy, you know, just you just get a few minutes of a light rain in one area, and then another area, and it's springtime, you're gonna have birds singing. When you have that torrential downpour from the Pacific Northwest, which is what we're very familiar with, it's a whole different. Um, you know, the environment's different. It's just pouring down rain, and the reasons the birds sing, I think, is for you know getting a mate and all that sort of thing. 
No, they're they're hunkered down. They're I, just trying to stay warm. I think it'd be interesting to consult someone who's an expert on birds of the Pacific Northwest, you know, to kind of get more details about this. Yes, and that's a call-out. If anybody out there is a biologist. Um, or an ornithologist. Or ornithologist, yes. Please get a hold of us. We'd love to hear from you and let us know. So the next story was actually a Smithsonian article, I believe. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk much about that. It's kind of a, I don't know what I, I guess what I'd refer to as sort of a stock type story. You know, when, when people sort of write these generic articles about Bigfoot, it's what it reminded me of. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of putting it. Um, nonetheless, it's still a very interesting story. And, you know, coming, you know, the Smithsonian, that's, that's you know, certainly interesting. You know, the last one is a really interesting, and it's, you know, they call it one of the classics, the Ruby Creek incident. And this takes, this took place, um, I've got Green's book open in front of me here. Now it says, I'm looking at the, I'm a little confused by the date, it says the story in Vancouver province, October 21st, 1941, uh, was inconspicuously placed on page 12 under the heading, Huge Bear Terrorizes Indians. You know, and, and I think, you know, back then and a lot of times, I think in a lot of locations when something like this happened, they were trying to blame it on bears, but... Um, <laughs> You know, when you go down, when they talk about, okay, um, in describing the animal, Mrs. Chadwick de declared that it was 10 feet tall, hairy, and with a human face, which is kind of similar to the other story we were talking about. Um, but they went on there and says, little credence was given to the story until the beast returned, this time left tracks, revealing that it had to be one of the largest bears ever known in the vicinity. Its hind foot, its hind foot marks, measured eight inches across and eighteen inches long, and there was five feet between the footprints, the spacing. There's no bear that's going to walk like that. I can guarantee you that because the the footprints are never that far apart. Um, even even if you're looking at the hind feet only, but you would find the front feet. I mean, they're going to stroll along on their back feet, and especially having an eighteen inch foot. Yeah. Right, right. It doesn't happen. And how far do bears walk on their hind legs? Not very far. They usually stand on their legs if they want to look or if they want to eat some berries or grab something up there. Right. They don't stay on their hind legs for very long. Yeah, or it's to, to get a better, you know, view or to smell. Or if it's a, uh, I think, don't they wear up in in, when, uh, in instances where they're um, challenged or, Yeah, know, right, kind if of provoked or posture. something. Yeah, exactly. But they don't just stroll through the woods on their hind legs. They're a, they're a quadruped. They're not a biped. And apparently there were a number of people who seen this creature. Um, you know, as it goes down, they talk about there was a Jimmy Douglas and his family were among those who saw the almost legendary man-beast. They reported that it was almost 14 feet high, almost double the height of the average Sasquatch. The Indians fled to their canoes and paddled furiously down the lake. Uh, really? Something that big, I think I'd follow suit. I'd be joining him. I'd great, give me a paddle, give me two, you know. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, what are your thoughts on this story, Tom? Well, I like the story, though. I really do. And 
you know, here's it's 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 kind of a repeat repeat with with the the bear thing. I think people are grappling. What is it? What did I see? And especially back then, there there wasn't the legend, at least amongst most people, of Bigfoot. So you're you know you're kind of grappling. What is this thing? It's it's a bear. Well, a fourteen foot bear. It is not. It's interesting. There's you know different. Well, the whole story is very interesting. Um, where it talks about here, where he goes past turned out to be a bear, but a huge one. Rosie, small daughter of Mrs. Gregory. Uh, of Mrs. George Chadwick, I'm sorry, an Indian was playing in the garden half a mile east of Ruby Creek when she suddenly looked up to see the enormous beast approaching. She screamed for help. Her mother rushed to get her, got one glimpse of the monster, swept the child under her arms, and dashed into the bush, where she remained for three hours before venturing home again. On her return, found the tracks, uh, the racks of salted salmon scattered every direction, but nothing else about the premises was touched. Well, I mean, that's, you know, kind of... I think to be expected, you know, they're going to have uh, racks of salted salmon, you know, out there and coming down to get a snack. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's just, you know, this is one of the really great pieces in Green's books. You know, there's there's more to it than that, of course, but, um, you know, I highly recommend anybody getting John Green's on the track of the Sasquatch because the story's in there and it's a really good one. And of course, you know, Jim just narrated it. So any final thoughts, Tom, before we wrap this up? Well, I just want to kind of ditto what you said as far as Jim's books. Um, Green's books. They are... Green's books. Green's books, yes. Uh, Jim, (laughs) you should write some books. Uh, (laughs) Green, maybe Jim has. Uh, Green's books... Simply because, again, it goes over and over again, the the repeating patterns, the historical precedents, and you see these encounters in the same locations from the past into the, into the present. Absolutely. Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed those stories, and stay tuned for the weekend show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.